developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 119. On today's show, APN co-founder and host of Modern Myth, Tristan Boyle, interviews the head of collections for the University of Aberdeen's Museum in Scotland, Neil Curtis, about the repatriation of the Benin Bronze to Nigeria. Let's dig a little deeper. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Archaeology Show on the Archaeology Podcast Network. I'm Tristan, and today I am speaking to Mr. Neil Curtis of the University of Aberdeen's Museums. He is the head of collections, and he has been doing quite a few appearances uh, on both radio and TV and in print because of a recent change to uh, what's been going on at the museum. Now, you might be familiar if you're a listener of the Archaeology Podcast Network, with the Benin Bronzes, as I have recently on my show, Modern Myth, spoken to Professor Dan Hicks about his book, The Brutish Museums. But, interestingly enough, the University of Aberdeen has decided to now return the Benin Bronzes that it's had in its collection back to Nigeria. And obviously, Neil, can you give us a little bit of uh, insight into what's happened here? Is it that, is this a kind of a sudden decision or has this been in the works for a while? Oh, it's definitely something we're doing for a while. I was quite amused that one of the broadcasts I, I was aware of, it wasn't actually when I was on, they were discussing in a panel why we'd made this decision. And somebody speculated it was because two days previously, we'd heard that there were things happening in Germany. And I thought, if only things happened that quickly, is something we've been thinking about for a while. But certainly the last couple of years have been working on this. But you can go back much longer. I mean, it's a much longer story. And I, I think we've got to be cautious in thinking too much about the now and you know they I mean our media release said that we were the, the first museum to to properly return one it's not a race so of course of course and these things the, the these things do take time can we like can we kind of roll back a little bit what do you think was the first kind of impetus to begin this kind of journey to return. Is this something the museum has been thinking about for a while in terms of other objects? Or was there something specific about the Benin bronzes that uh, like started this journey? 
I think there's a whole load of things coming together. I mean, I think museums over the last generation or so have been increasingly, you know, looking more critically at the relationships that the objects that they have reveal and are part of. So repatriation has therefore come out of that. And indeed, most discussion about repatriation really started in North America, Australia, New Zealand, with indigenous communities there wanting to have ancestral remains, sacred items returned to them. So it's something that's been going on for a long time. And in fact, the the first repatriation case I was involved in was in 2003. And having gone through that, and that was a really interesting case. It was um, an item that we had recorded and regarded as a museum object that was a, a headdress. Whereas to the Horn Society of the Kainine First Nation in Canada, it was a sacred bundle. And Going through that both gave us a procedure for considering repatriation, but it also, I think, got me thinking even more about the meanings of objects and how it's not just simple facts associated with each object. It's not just its dimensions, its material, its weight, its age. It's what things mean to people. So that's a very long, slow process that museums have been going through and many, many museums doing that. But I think there's something different with the uh, the, the, the bronze, and it was just one that we returned, mm-hmm. is that this is something that isn't ancestral remains, not human remains, nor is it something that is really about it being a sacred item. I mean, I think they, you know, they had a particular part to play in traditional life in, in Benin City that you know they, they they were records of the Obas, the kings of, of Benin. They, mm. they were very important. At, but I don't think the claim has been the basis of them being sacred. So it's more that we started looking at the collection and just you're know, not not as a sort of program to you know look quickly for things, but just gradually over time, and became increasingly aware. And I mean, I've known this obviously for a, quite a while that you know a we had one and b the circumstances of acquisition were pretty dreadful, but just. The more you think about it, the more you realise, hang on, we're returning something for that reason. Why are we not thinking about this? Mm-hmm. And certainly, I mean, more more recently, the more that we think about the legacy of colonisation, the legacy of slavery, and then, you know, obviously last year with um, Black Lives Matter coming to the fore, mm-hmm. you really start thinking, come on, this is ridiculous. We've got to do something. Mm-hmm. So it was different from the previous repatriations in that it was initiated by us in the University Museum rather than as our normal policy is, is to wait. And, you know, I can talk about that later, why I think that's actually really important that we're not being proactive all the time. But this is one where we thought, no, really, this is this is ridiculous. We've We've got to start thinking about this and doing something. Of course, of course. And the, the process here that you're describing is something that does seem to have some, like there's a definite level of nuance to it. I'm just wondering if you could, just for people listening, um, descri- well, how would you describe these o- objects? It was just the the one Benin yes. bronze, uh, what's called a sculpture of an Oba, who was, yes. that's a, a, a Benin king. Yes. How would you describe it? What does it look like? Yes, I mean, I can, it's quite, I can now say, look at the web. Uh, the picture's all over the world now of, of the one that we've had in Aberdeen. It is a life-size head, more or less. The base is circular. It's a... It, 
you know, very lifelike but slightly stylized representation of uh, an Oba wearing a coral crown and sort of n- necklet, but obviously all made in bronze. It's a lost wax casting, so it would have been carved by hand in wax and then um, put, you know, the clay put over that, it heated till the wax poured out and then replaced with bronze. It's probably, I think, is it, I think it's 28 centimetres um, diameter and maybe a wee bit taller than that. The thing I'm really conscious of, and this is one of the you know great privileges that I've had working with the collection, is the thing that really strikes me is weight. It's heavy. It really, you know, it's not solid, but mm. it's a substantial bit of metal. Oh, wow. You mentioned earlier that the way in which it came into uh, Aber- the University of Aberdeen's Museum's collections was possibly not uh, not so great. How did it become part of the collections? Yes, I mean, in a way, the way that it came into the university collection was not particularly problematic. It was um, bought at auction in 1957. Mm. And that was something that was fairly commonplace in museums, particularly in the, the middle of the 20th century. In Aberdeen, I think there's a specific local story that I, I find quite interesting that the museum really developed. It goes back into the 18th century as sort of curiosities associated with the, the institution. But it was refounded at the turn of the 20th century as an anthropological museum. Mm-hmm. And at that point, anthropology was seen as having three fields what we think mm-hmm. of now as cultural anthropology and physical anthropology and archaeology. Yeah. The curator was actually the professor of anatomy so physical anthropology was his way into those three fields but he was really interested in uh, archaeology and cultural anthropology and in fact I think there's there might be an entire other podcast all looking at the archaeology because he was very interested in prehistoric beakers and we've as a result we've got a particularly good collection in Aberdeen of beakers and associated human remains but his successor and really it was just two men were curators between 1907 and 1979 and his successor as curator was in 1957 was thinking in a slightly different way about the collection instead of it being anthropology and science and so on he was thinking of it more aesthetically and so Mm -hmm. he spent what there was of a purchase fund, we now don't have a purchase fund, on buying aesthetic items. So we've got a, a number of actually Chinese bronzes and um, ceramic and th- this Benin bronze came within that group. So he was buying things at auction and then he put a new display that drew from the existing collections but sort of focused on uh, on the aesthetics. And I know he did one, give a, a talk about hats. So he was pulling out from what had been a sort of geographical come racial display and drew across that all the hats from different places to give a talk. So really interested in the look of things and, and that approach. So I think that's why it was bought. But it's really the story before that, how it, you know, how it came to you know, be for sale in the art market that is the really problematic one. And this is, goes back to the British um, punitive expedition to Benin City in 1897, when the city was, was sacked, many people killed, palace, royal palace burnt, the, uh, the Oba, the king, exiled, and the contents of the palace looted. Mm which is where all these bronzes and carved ivory and such like were all taken away as plunder by the troops who, who had attacked it. And they then moved into the art market. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. 
We'll hear a bit more about the Ben and Bronzes after this short break. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code TAS. Hey, podcast fans. I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. And we're back. This is a special episode of the Archaeology Show so we've talked about how the Ben and Bronzes, uh, what's happening with Ben and Bronzes in terms of Aberdeen's University Museums uh, returning them and how they came in to the collections. What I'm quite interested in is, obviously, as you said, this relates to the, the, the kind of the ideas behind this. They seem to be timed very much to what's happening at the moment, but they have been happening. These conversations have been happening for quite a number of years. What has the response been to this news? Have you been surprised by any responses? Or like, what do you feel is the general consensus from other museums, from the media? Like, How do you feel this has been received? I think this really striking thing has been the way that clearly it struck a chord. I mean, we've never had a media story that's, you know, had quite the traction this has. So, you know, it, it's gone everywhere. We had, I can't remember the, the, the number of social media impressions. It was something phenomenal, like 27 million. Huge. So that's one thing. The other side, though, is it's been really interesting in a sense how straightforward how flat it's been that in essence our almost all the things i've read are just our media release rewritten with somebody else's name mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. been is not really led to any particular challenge or objection or really much to what we've done i think it, it's been treated very straightforwardly but it clearly has chimed with uh, with what's going on and what people are thinking it's it's a really good thing i think because a lot of people downplay the the value of the impact of history but um, situations like this demonstrate that actually it is something that is very much uh, in people's minds and mm -hmm. people do react to it I'm quite interested in, obviously, the, you, you said that this is kind of an ongoing, a, a quite lengthy process. What are the barriers to repatriation? You mentioned earlier that perhaps taking it easy is kind of a better step to take when it comes to matters of repatriation. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I think I mean, 
repatriation or whatever word we want to use. Yes, I mean, return, course. transfer, there's lots of different words used and mm-hmm. we can, you know, sometimes I think I ought to be, I ought to be more fussed, but I'm, I'm not. But I think whatever it is, these are things that obviously really, really matter to people. Mm-hmm. And so they should be taken very seriously and you know dealt with carefully. It's it's actually in a sense rare for a museum to get the degree of attention on a particular item as it gets when something's being dis- when repatriation is being discussed. So it really matters. And I think my previous experience had been with, uh, say, a sacred item or ancestral remains, and yet in a conventional museum way, they were all the items we've returned had the catalogue number. They were in the catalogue. They each took up the same sort of semantic space as um, a beaker or a stone axe head. They were each an item, a museum item. And so what this was about is saying, no, these things are no longer to be treated as museum items. They're changing their status to go back to or go on to a different treatment. So it's something that I think we've we've got to be listening really, really carefully to the people who are making the request. That's my big wariness just now is that it can be become something that become something that people in the West so want to do. And there's a I sometimes worry that you know we're almost wanting to quickly cleanse our consciences and sort it all quickly, and we're not thinking enough about the people who would get them back. So I'm thinking particularly of sacred items and uh, ancestral remains that for a community to get their ancestors back, that's a big thing. Mm. And they want to be sure that they're bringing their ancestors back to a good place where they're able to look after them properly. So for us to wantonly go around the world shoving people's ancestors at them would be so wrong. And I feel also with the with the Benning bronzes, and this is something I'm, you know, I really claim no expertise on, but I I would feel for people in Nigeria if suddenly lots of people started, you know, contacting them saying, "Oh, I think we've got one. Would you like it back?" They could be deluged with it, and I think you know we've got to let the process be led by them. So mm-hmm. that's what we did that I made, you know, I found um, a route way through, you know, a couple of people who knew people who were in touch with the right people in in Nigeria and said to them, you know, if you would like to put in a claim, then we will treat that seriously and, and be very positive. And then we spent that time working with them. So, you know, broadly it was, um, you know, a year finding the right people and a year then, well, less than a year discussing with them. It was reasonably quick once we actually got going. What's interesting is that you're saying this against a, a backdrop of situations where museums, I don't want to say they are, but they seem to have barriers and quite serious barriers in terms of repatriation where communities might not feel like they're being taken seriously and where communities feel as if their requests are either fallen on deaf ears or they the, the the request dies in the process how do you reassure communities that you know like how do you reassure them that their claims will be listened to and what are the things that the university of aberdeen's museums kind of like what have they done in the past uh, what have you know, you've been mm-hmm. part of that 
that kind of reassures that community? Do you have any examples of repatriation where you've needed to provide that kind of support? Probably not, because I think by the time people ask, they have gone through a lot themselves. I think the amount of support we could offer them is very slight, but we can, you know, be respectful and just treat it seriously and take it in its own terms. So, you know, I have been very wary of thinking of, you know, there's a, there's a, Museums Gallery Scotland produced guidance on the treatment of human remains in Scottish museums. And I was involved in the panel that wrote that. One thing I was rather uneasy about was the definition of human remains at the start. And I would rather not have a definition because I uh, I really shudder the idea of somebody making a request and us saying, oh, no, we're not listening to that because it doesn't meet our definition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it is about respectful listening. I think the the broader issue of how do, I mean, I can only talk about how we would respond mm-hmm. if somebody yeah. comes to us, but I think if we can talk about this with other museums and how this has been something that enriches the way that we look at the collection and what we do with the collection and our, you know, our aims are about understanding the collection and that and understanding the relationships. So by letting people see that it's not something that is particularly scary or troublesome or negative, then hopefully that'll persuade other people that, you know, they should, if they get a request, then take it seriously. I'd also say that, and this was one of my early experiences was being asked for a photograph of an item in a discussion that I, I expected to lead to repatriation, a repatriation request. And I remember thinking then, oh, if I send them the photograph, they will then know what it's like. And I then won't be able to say to them, tell me what it is you're looking for and quiz them in that way. And I realized, mm-hmm. hang on, if this was a researcher coming to the museum and saying, could I have a photograph? You wouldn't think twice. Mm-hmm. So I think it's realizing that anybody who is interested in the collection and wanting to make that contact, contact, we should treat seriously and respectfully, regardless who they are and regardless what their relationship is. We then let that flow. So a lot of it is just about letting things flow and carrying on listening and working with them. And do you think that museums in general, in your view, have, do you think they're more open to cases of repatriation now or is that something of a just because it's like because because it's in the public eye now that it seems like there's a lot more of it going on? Is it a matter of perspective, or is it actually a change in how museums are behaving? I mean, it is both that, but I think it's the change has been happening for quite a while. I think most people, certainly the the museums that have. Certainly museum you know, anthropologists and probably quite a few museum archaeologists who, who are thinking in a similar sort of way. I think most museums, the staff are understanding of repatriation and you know, quite relaxed about, uh, about that, not regarding it as a threat. I think there are the difficulties when it, beca- you know, it hits either people who regard the collection as treasures that their value, the value of the mu- of the museum, is measured by how many treasures it has. You know, dragon like. Mm-hmm. I think that's a problem. And then I think the other one is when the collection gets bound up with um, particularly national identity, mm-hmm. and it's seen as undermining you know the national myths 
and that's when it's more more of a problem. So I don't really think that the museum people are are usually the ones that are having problems. I think it, it is much more about governance and law. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, this is just off. Uh, this is one of the things that always struck me as quite interesting was that um, museums um, only have at any time a very small percentage of their collections out on display would you mind give me uh, like a number in terms of percent of how how much is usually on display from a museum's kind of stores I mean, it, it varies a lot from uh-huh. museum to museum but i mean i would be i would be in the two to five percent range is what i'd be thinking is quite normal that's fascinating uh, i mean it's yeah. tiny but i think this goes back to you know what is a museum for mm-hmm. and I think it's very revealing about what society expects of museums. That I think the expectation is that museums will look after the collective memory, mm-hmm. and yet actually, it's for a start they don't they're not funded well enough to do it properly, and the looking after and be just being known to be looking after is what matters. The having things on display is a different expectation, and so I mm-hmm. think the. There's a lot, a lot of people give things to museums. I think there's a most museum collections are built up basically by passive collecting. People want their collection to be looked after, and they want to know that future generations will have it in some rather vague way. And so, in many ways, I'd rather think of museums as almost like sacred institutions in the West that they're looking after the heritage. They have, you know, it's art, these words that are really difficult to pin down. So I think the idea of trying of judging a museum on the sort of use value of what percentage are on display or are being researched in any one year is a misunderstanding of what society expects museums to do. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course, completely. We'll be t- returning to uh, more discussions about museums and the future after this very short break. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And welcome back to the show. Uh, This is a special episode for the Archaeology Show. And finally, uh, Neil, I'm really interested um, in terms of actually just coming off the end of like, you know, museums, possibly not having the funding they need to do what is expected of them. How, like, it, it does seem that the public is really interested in these kind of stories and they actually have a close connection in the past. How can the public and those interested in heritage help museums? Like, obviously, this this past year especially has been very, very different for museums. So what is the ways in which people can kind of support museums? Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, I wanted to turn this upside down, I'm not quite sure how, because I think we, 
you know, yes, museums exist. I work in a museum, so I want mm. people to help me. But why should people be expected to help museums? I think we need to think more about you know, mm. what is it that people want from museums. So I would like it to be that museums are you know, as I've you know said in some of the, uh, uh, the the media interviews I had, that we're looking for the truth, and mm. that's going to be challenging. And so I'd I'd like people to engage with museums in searching for that truth, however you know difficult it may be. I mean, I certainly know that my 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 background is um, basically Scottish archaeology, and I get most excited when there's the the current stories are uh, overturned and we get a new interpretation of you know what date were recumbent stone circles were they Neolithic no they're not, and I find that change that challenge really good. So I'd I'd like to encourage more people to view museums as part of that challenging and changing way of thinking about the past, and so for people to take part in those debates, those discussions. So I'm really keen on the events where you can engage and have those discussions, probably more than I am, uh, I whisper slightly, mm -hmm. creating exhibitions because exhibitions, mm -hmm. they tell us the same story for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I really try and encourage people to engage more thoroughly with the museums and what they're thinking. But yes, you know, do give museums your money. I mean, great. <laughs> <laughs> and actually just off the back of, um, you know, obviously the, 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 the lockdowns and the chases and rules and everything's um, just like how has, how has, how has the museum that you work in uh, adapted to that? Um, some museums have put some of their collections online, 3D scanned, the whole technology shebang. What do you see the plan going going forward? Is there has there been a digital adaptation? Huge shift. And sometimes I mean it is it's it is a bit strange that this year has been so horrible for so many people in so many ways. And yet there's times when I've found it remarkably liberating within the museum what we're doing, that we've put on our exhibitions. We've now put a whole load of them on the uh, on, on a new platform so they're online in the way we weren't, we'd, we'd begun to do, but we hadn't actually launched it. So we were able to launch that a, a year ago. Events now are not just available to people in Aberdeen. They're now anywhere in the world people can, can come and join. So we've been doing an awful lot more and engaging with an awful lot more people I mean, our social media figures have, have shot up and stayed high. So we've really shifted our whole at attention. And indeed, I'm looking ahead to when people are going to be able to come back. I'm trying to think that instead of having a sort of public engagement program built around exhibitions, we're going to flip that so that we'll think of a topic and create a variety of things to do that. Some will be online and indeed some will be physical exhibitions, but we'll start with the topic and who the people are we're engaging with, thinking about the audience and what's the argument, what's the question, what, what's the, the new challenge of that idea and what are the best ways of engaging with people, which may or may not be exhibition. So, I mean, we've had our database online for, for ages. Unfortunately, over the last year, we had a couple of completely un-COVID-related problems with our databases where we, for a while, lost our entire 
collection management database Ooh. and then we lost our we, we lost the this was slightly more planned digital objects database which is really frustrating but we've just this week we're, we're buying a, a 3d scanner so things are beginning to improve and we'll be able to have more different ways of of putting things online that's fantastic. And just finally, um, we had a few actually, a few uh, list, uh, listener questions prepped. And one of the questions was asking about the kind of like what this means for the future, the return of the Ben and Bronzes. They were asking whether the, the media hype would then put pressure on museums only to return items when, you know, they knew they would get the clicks and the, the view time and the attention. You've kind of alluded to things being much slower. Are you concerned that the media attention will change the reasons why people repa- uh, like museums repatriate? Or do you think that the general trend is actually, a, there's a good uh, process behind the general trend? Well, I, th- I think basically, I mean, the, I'm not expecting a sudden flurry I think there's, I mean, it's interesting, looking over 20 years or so, it's amazing how few requests there have actually been. It's really striking how few there are. So I think it's it's striking how important it is, and that's why it hits the media. And I think it's a really, it's a good thing in that it's making people think more about history, heritage, uh, material culture, the meanings of objects, the relationships is much healthier than just treating them as the facts of the past. I think the number of repatriation requests is going to be always small because it is so time-consuming, expensive, emotionally draining for the claimant and the museum. I think, you know, what I've been very pleased with the media attention around our media release was actually how positive it was and thoughtful it was that I was concerned that, you know, the way that some sometimes things go in social media in a very antagonistic way. And I was so pleased that that didn't happen, that we were able to have genuine, thoughtful discussion happening. That's excellent. And if uh, people are more interested in finding out about the museum in general, where can they go online? Uh, yes, we have a we have a website www.abdn.ac.uk forward slash museums. However, it's one of the projects in hand, um, so <laughs> we're hoping to be replacing that with a, a new one. That we've we've now merged the museums with the university special collections, the archives, the rare books. So we will have forward slash collections will eventually appear, and I won't be embarrassed by that because it'll be so much better. <laughs> But on the on the museum's website, I mean, we do have various activities. We have links to the database. We have links to the online exhibition. So there's a lot of good stuff there. That's excellent. Well, thank you very much for sitting down and discussing this. And here's to more opportunities to talk about museums in the future. Definitely. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.